It's the criterion. It's the criterion. 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 In. 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 Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Criterion Project. This is the podcast where we talk about movies in the Criterion channel or collection or both. I am Conrado Falco, and I'm joined, as always, by the great Rachel Wagner. Rachel, how you doing? Doing well. How are you? I'm pretty, I'm pretty well. Today, we're excited because this is the beginning of our third year of Criterion Project, so it's the beginning of season three and it's also a momentous occasion because we are here to you know um fan the flames of rachel's feud with jean-luc godard finally (laughs) seeing one of his movies on the show talking about it and we have a very special guest for this uh it's writer and photographer and my dear friend esther co esther how you doing Hi, I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for having me for this momentous occasion. (laughs) Yeah, we're very excited. (laughs) So you might not know, Esther, that we have a we have a pretentiousness scale and it's one to ten. And ten is uh, a Godard film. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That (laughs) makes perfect sense to me. And I, I mean, in fairness, previous to this viewing, I had only seen one and it was film socialism and it made me want to die. <laughs> I hate it so much. <laughs> and so, uh, which is not on the Criterion Collection, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, we would have to talk about it, obviously. But yeah. I feel like maybe if we ever start a patron of something, we should make like yeah. a goal. Like if we get a certain amount of patrons, we will watch Film Socialism <laughs> talk about it. So, Does anyone actually want to hear that? <laughs> I don't know. Just to see you suffer through it? I, I, I think, think it's the internet like likes to watch me suffer. I, I have no doubt oh, about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, it's Piero LeFou, what we're talking about, and it's going to be great. But before yeah. we do that, we are going to talk about some of the stuff that we've been watching lately. So, Rachel, would you like to tell us about yeah. something you've been watching? Well, I watched on the Criterion channel. They have the original cast album of Company 1970. This is a documentary made by D.A. Pennebaker uh, that follows, it's only 53 minutes long, but it basically follows the the cast as they, the original cast of Company as they record their cast album. And Sondheim is there, of course. And uh, and you've got all the legends, Lane Stretch, J- Dean Jones, the whole amazing cast. And to see them go through that process of making that recording is just really great. I wish they're all Broadway musicals did this. <laughs> and <laughs> Company is my personal favorite on time. I feel like it kind of gets overshadowed by Sweeney Todd and... Uh, into the woods but it's my favorite i love Mm. it and i love the music and and it's just it was so cool i highly recommend it i feel like it's the kind of the the people who are into sondheim i feel they like company the most i feel Mm. like it's kind of like the sondheim's son fanatics uh favorite or something Mm -hmm. i don't know i don't know if that's true or not but it's it's definitely 
my favorite and i i don't know i just feel like it it doesn't get the uh the same adulation as as those other two and and i mean i never forget Rolla sparza singing being alive Mm. uh, at the tony awards and then not winning i just (laughs) didn't believe that i'll never forgive them for that do you know who won that year (laughs) david hyde pierce oh really yeah (laughs) was it like the first first thing he says is wow i can't believe i won (laughs) like that's right well yeah, you know but... <laughs> who doesn't love Frasier I guess that's yeah. what happened there yeah so anyway it's this was a treat I really enjoyed it so I highly recommend it Rachel have you seen the documentary now episode that is basically a parody of that documentary I because, have not. because I think now that you've seen the the movie and you love the show you should watch that um I don't think it's too raunchy. I think I think you will appreciate it because mm-hmm. it's so well. It's such a great parody because it's so much like the documentary. It's very specific and it's very funny. Um, mm-hmm. So you should check that out. Cool. John Mulaney plays Stephen Sondheim, and he's oh. he's very good at imitating him. Oh, cool! Yeah, I'll check that out. So, yeah, what have you been watching, Conrado? Um, so I saw a movie on the channel that is leaving actually at the end of the month. So I wanted to talk about it. It's called Cotton Comes to Harlem. And it's um, from 1970. Uh, it's kind of regarded as one of the very first exploitation movies. So it's directed by Ozzy Davis, who is a, you know, famous black actor, like, you know, kind of. Uh, from New York theater and movies and he's uh, you might have seen him in Spike Lee's do the right thing he plays the mayor and in this movie he directs it it's the biggest movie he directed and the first one I think that he directed and it's kind of the story about two cops two black cops in Harlem who are trying to investigate um, a a famous preacher kind of figure who apparently is kind of uh, asking his followers for money in order to he says that if they give him money he's gonna take them all back to Africa you know like it's for a ticket and a boat that's gonna go back to Africa and that's where they're gonna like find themselves or something like that and then the money that the people have been given disappears or is stolen rather it does disappear we it's a pretty exciting chasing the money disappears and then the cops are kind of suspicious of the guy so it's a fun movie if you like a black exploitation movie. I enjoyed this a lot. I'm kind of new to black exploitation, but I'm getting into it. And it's got a lot of surreal comedy elements to it. Like some very funny, weird gags in the middle of this story about crime and, you know, police and whatever, which I enjoyed a lot. Um, it also has very incredible location shooting in Harlem in the 70s. So that's pretty cool. Um, and it kind of tries to talk about what was happening at the time, the, the politics and the spirit of like... Oh, Conrado, we lost you for a little bit, about 30 seconds. Oh, okay. Um, so do... you were talking about you were new to exploitation. Okay. You're just starting to get into it. All right. Yeah, so I'm, I'm starting to get into it. And this story, this movie was pretty fun. It has great like shot on location in Harlem and... It kind of tries to talk about all the stuff that was happening at the time politically and, you know, the black power movement, things like that. Without being too didactic, I feel like maybe, depends on your perspective, you might think that it's being 
a little vague maybe or maybe not uh i personally enjoyed it so i recommend it i think it was a lot of fun cool i haven't heard of it never heard of that one corrado is it visually surreal or or like how what does it look like it's it's pretty realistic looking the surreal this I don't know if surreal is is right. I think you have actually pointed out a flaw in my description there. <laughs> it's more like um I would say more absurd than surreal. Okay. It's just like there's like suddenly there's some chickens involved and everyone's throwing chickens at each other. Right. And there's like a couple of very silly gags in moments that you wouldn't uh expect. Like there's a white cop who gets humiliated in a couple of different ways that are kind of like very silly. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. How about you Esther? Do you have something to recommend or talk about? Um, yeah, I, so I have had a lot of trouble watching movies, partially because uh, my Wi-Fi situation is very unstable right now, and partially because I can't focus on anything. But um, I did finish watching Dead Pigs by Kathy Yen, um, which is uh, her film from, I think, last year, but it was released on movie, which is where mm. I saw it. Um, and it's about... Uh, like a bunch of people in Shanghai, China. Um, and I think the word Altman-esque has been used to describe it because it's like a bunch of different characters. Um, and you kind of see their like slice of life moments, but it's, they're all very um, vibrant characters. And it's, it's a, it is, it's also a kind of like quirky world um where uh, there's like this news story about uh, how dead pigs are showing up in the river and uh, there's a pig farmer who's running away from uh, people he owes money to. And then there's like his sister is trying to um, save their family home from uh, people who want to like buy out all the land and build giant developments. Um, so there's like a lot of commentary on uh, like economic displacement and and class differences um but it's all quirky and fun i think mm. yeah that sounds well, good and yeah. and kathy yan she is the the director of the harley quinn movie isn't Correct. she She directed birds of play yeah birds mm -hmm. of prey oh interesting yeah this because is what's made, it called again the one you're this is called dead pigs oh i think i heard about that yeah, yeah. I think she made it right before Birds of Prey, I believe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That's sounds cool. about right. It says 2018 here on uh, IMDb. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, oh, that's interesting. I always wondered uh, what she had done before because when I saw Birds of Prey, I didn't recognize the name, mm -hmm. um, her name. So yeah. that sounds exciting. And that's a movie. Do you know if it's still there? I am not sure. All right, well. Check. Everybody, if you're listening and sounds interesting, go check. And then you can get your free trial for 30 days to watch this movie. Yeah. I think it is still playing, actually. Oh, great. Okay, so why don't we get then into the main topic for this episode, which is the movie Pierrot Le Fou, directed by Jean-Luc Godard in 1965. I'm going to read the plot synopsis that I have here in front of me. It says, Pierrot escapes his boring society and travels from Paris to the Mediterranean Sea with Marianne, a girl chased by hitmen from Algeria. They lead an unorthodox life, always on the run. That makes it sound pretty straightforward, which I don't think the movie is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
For some reason, I feel like in these movies, whenever they these men leave their husbands, there's always an incredibly attractive ingenue ready to go. Oh, yeah. And it's That's part of why they leave them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're so beautiful that obviously he would leave his stupid wife. Like, yeah, his obviously. Wife. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Esther, do you want to tell us uh, your history with the movie? Because we were going back and forth before we uh, we chose what to talk about, and you were telling me uh, about Pierrot. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I think I first watched this movie in high school, uh, which is a long time ago now, like early 2000s. And as uh, Conrado was reading the plot summary, I remember also reading that summary after I had watched the movie and being like, wait, that's what happened? Um, Because so much of it went right over my head, including the fact that there's a really, really atrocious yellow face scene in it. Um, And I, for years, I like, I, for some reason, I loved this movie and I like, would always cite it as one of my favorites, um, maybe because I was a pretentious asshole and just wanted to seem cool. But uh, I think I was genuinely attracted by its style and its sense of um, like, oh yes, this bourgeois world and breaking free of it. And I think that really resonated with me. Um, and then in, like as I got older, I realized how uh, how much of it left me out of that narrative, even though I had and identified it with it so much. Um, so, like the gender dynamics of it, for one, I think we, uh, you know, even talking about like, oh yeah, of course he leaves a stupid wife for Anna Karina. Like, look mm. at her. Um, that's something that like it took me a while to be like, oh wait, that's actually really fucked up, uh, or or the idea of you know I'm at this port party with all these boring people and I'm so much better than them, so I'm gonna go off. Um, yeah, I just I I have a complicated relationship with this movie. <laughs> Well, it was interesting when I was watching it. I, I mean, I this is a billion times better than film socialism. Not even the same camp. You can't see little like seeds of of film socialism like in the in the sort of in the more the flights of fancy and the you know breaking the fourth wall and just some of the things mm-hmm. you can see little bits, but it's so much more palatable here. Uh, but. One thing I kept thinking about, and I don't know if you've seen the, if you've seen Brexit <laughs> Tiffany's, but this, they're very similar. Very, very similar. Even to the point of both yep. having yep. yellow face awkwardness. <laughs> um, they're both about a writer and a free-spirited kind of Manic Pixie Dream Girl type. They're both about uh, kind of their relationship and uh they both have sort of extended party scenes yeah yeah and and uh they're both have scenes involving plots involving the like organized crime and the mafia and there's a lot 
in there that's very similar between the two. I do. I feel like one big difference is that um, the uh, Holly Golightly character, I, I also haven't seen Breakfast at Tiffany's in a long time, but I feel like she's kind of portrayed as like, Yes, Maddie picks you, Dream Girl, but like we feel bad for her. Oh yeah. Um, whereas the mean Reds. Yeah. Whereas uh, um, Marianne, it's like she's the Maddie Pixie Dream Girl, and she's evil. That's true. You know, like, and I, I just find it so fascinating that this. I think this was the last movie um, Anna Karina and Godard made before they got divorced. Yeah, that's interesting. I was reading that. Actually, this, they were almost kind of on the way to being divorced or something when they were making the movie. Oh, so. yeah. And you can kind of tell. <laughs> yeah. Well, and they're, both movies are from the nineteen early 1960s. And so it just kind of made me think, well, maybe this was sort of a... Uh, a little bit of a, a bit of a trend. I would think you'd say Breakfast at Tiffany's is probably the more commercial... A mainstream kind of version of probably i think probably. undoubtedly <laughs> definitely um, but uh uh but breakfast of tiffany's was kind of my movie in college that i was really in love with and i still i still mm. love it obviously it has its obvious flaws but i uh i really love the uh, the story and uh, and Audrey Hepburn's performance in Moon River, I love so much. And so that I wish that there had been more sort of music in this a little bit more. But but overall, I uh, I liked it uh, for the most part. I mean, it's still it's disjointed enough to not be my favorite, but certainly was probably better than I expected, I guess. The uh, the random ballet sequence didn't do it for you, Rachel. <laughs> there wasn't music enough music for you. Um, why don't we talk a bit about why this movie is different from Breakfast at Tiffany's, which is this whole like Godard type style and the kind of thing yeah. that he was doing at the time that was, I guess, revolutionary in its own way and trying to be very playful with cinema and I think very self-referential with cinema mm -hmm. there's uh, references to Nicholas Ray to I mean Samuel Fuller appears in the movie the director does and there's that moment that which I really enjoyed when they're trying to run from the gas station and she says I'm gonna do the trick I saw from Laurel and Hardy and she just kind of like you know that's the thing where she goes in the head and then bumps him in the stomach um, which I thought was funny it was very charming. Um, and I guess that's kind of a thing that at the time felt so fresh and new and connected, especially with young people, even though apparently he was a very controversial figure, even at the time. You know, there was a lot of older critics who didn't get what he was doing and saw that he was messy and it didn't make any points or whatever. They said that in what I was reading, that many of the scenes were improvised. And I think that you can kind of tell... Because there's just like this randomness about it that can be intriguing, but it can also be frustrating. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, you've seen, I think, the most Godard movies of the three of us, Esther. So I don't know if you have general thoughts about him. Yeah. I, so I've pretty much exclusively seen his early works. I don't, I don't fuck with his later <laughs> works. Uh, but so... Watching this again actually was really interesting because um, 
compared to some of his earlier works, like Breathless and uh, Vis a Vis, uh, it, they, they all have the kind of like freshness of spirit, the, the referentialness, re- referentiality, is that a word? Um, sure. And like that, the, the obsession with um, like Hollywood movies and Westerns and pulpy things and uh, breaking the fourth wall, like that's all part of his um, oeuvre oeuvre mm-hmm. up to this point and this is the first time that i realized in this movie how bored he seems with himself um like i don't know if it's me projecting but i do feel like he, like it, like all of these things we're talking about as like revolutionary um parts of his filmmaking he's been doing it for a few years now, mm. like his, all of his other movies have, have these things in them. And so at this point it starts to feel like, okay, well he's doing his thing. He's, this one is even more self-referential in terms of his own movies, right? Like he actually literally references his own movies, um, becoming Quentin Tarantino basically. And mm. uh, the, like, I don't know. I just got this weird sense that he was like, yeah, this is what I do. Um, I guess this is a Western, but like, uh, I'm over that. I'm going to turn this into a musical. Uh, I'm over that. I'm going to do this other thing. Uh, I'm over that. Right. Let's go mm-hmm. back to the crime spree, whatever. Like, I don't know. Uh, that's interesting. Did you did you read the Roger Ebert review, Rachel, of this movie? I didn't. But yeah, there was a side of me that when he's breaking the fourth wall and when all of a sudden there's like images of fireworks and things like that, that, that part of me was intrigued. Part of me was rolling my eyes like... It, mm-hmm. it definitely feels self-indulgent and you know it's just like just let it, fe- it feels a little try hard at times you know that's like yeah. let your let your characters and your story tell your story not your i don't know things like that hmm. okay i have a question for the two of mm-hmm. you do you feel like um uh Pierre or Ferdinand uh, is supposed to be like, okay, you know how uh, he, the, the premise of the story is that this man is tired of this bourgeois life, right? He's at this party, all of these boring people. And so he escapes. Do you feel like Ferdinand is supposed to be any less boring or phony? Um... Like, is he supposed to be the, the, the guy? Like, does the movie want you to believe like, oh, actually, yes. He is not full of bullshit. I think it's almost. I think that he is... We are supposed to think that he could go into something different and something more. I think the part when they go to the to the beach and then he starts writing this, uh, this um, diary and he says something like, I want to write something that is not a story, that it's just like the feelings or things as they happen, something like that, which I think it's kind of like pointing at the, the the possibility that he can go into something beyond, but I don't think that he really does. And maybe ultimately what you were saying is that the movie kind of blames the female character for him not being able to do that because she wants to go back mm-hmm. to civilization or whatever. But I think that, yeah, that a little bit, he's kind of in the middle. And I feel like that's kind of Godard himself because I brought up the Roger Ebert review because he was talking about how this was kind of a pivotal Point in, point in his career in which he was transitioning into something different 
from the early movies in which he was doing all these techniques and now he was moving into color and widescreen and into something that was a little bit different. Uh And I think that's him trying to write that diary is him trying to move into something else and then maybe very selfishly feeling like his partner Anna Karina is not letting him do that and then putting it all on screen, obviously, because that's the kind of guy that he is. Well, I don't know. I felt a little bit about him the same way I did about the lead in Eight and a Half when I watched that movie. Mm. And I was just like, this guy's a loser. Why do all these women want to be with him? He's, he's he's just so blah. And you've got all these these, these interesting, uh, beautiful women that are <laughs> that are so, I don't know. That, and so... I felt a little bit the same way about this guy that I did with him. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. I think it's um, interesting. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I, I was just going to say, what did you all think about all of the corpses everywhere? And the fact that even when there's something pretty grotesque, first of all, it's not done realistically at all. It's done like with obvious paint. It's not like <laughs> real blood looking at all. But there was never a sense like they were just all very like, eh, about mm-hmm. a dead body. Whereas like any human, normal human, if you saw somebody with a with a pair of scissors, if their face, you would be like, ah, right. That would be shocking. Uh, I actually a have a human. I have an interesting quote about this, which I was doing some reading in preparation for this, and this is from. Uh, Richard Brody writing on the Criterion uh, website, The Current, about this movie. And he describes that scene at the cocktail party where Ferdinand meets uh, the American director, who is Sam Fuller, who was a real director, and he asks him to define cinema. And here the quote begins. Fuller responds, A film is like a battleground. It's love, hate, action, violence, and death. In one word, emotions. Rather than have actors act out emotions on screen, Godard wanted to find a way to signify emotion and thus to arouse in the viewer so that emotion would go from the filmmaker to the viewer not analogically but in concentrated, sublimated form by means of style. So I think uh, it's what you were saying, Rachel, of not, of deliberately, on purpose, wanting to tell the story not the traditional way from a character's perspective but from something different from something that i think he would argue is more cinematic uh and i think that's kind of the thing that i take away from the movie most positively is these this just like and in godard in general just the idea that he's a dude who as much of a jerk as he is i have to recognize that he thinks about cinema in a very specific way and in a very some interesting way in many in many respects mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think there's a really interesting tension there um that scene with the scissors in particular like the the shot of her in that wide angle lens uh like uh crossing the scissors across the frame like that's an image that has stuck with me for you know almost 20 years at this point um but at the same time, like that juxtapose these like striking images and like the the incongruity of all of that violence with their uh, attitude that it's like it's all just a game to them. Mm-hmm. Like it feels 
just perpetually like they're playing games. Um, both when they literally say we're, we're acting out these movies or whatever, but uh, I don't know. There's something about that that I think I found really appealing at one point because it does feel fresh. Um, it does, it, it, it does the opposite of the thing where like a movie will belabor the point of like being dark and gritty and like, look at this violence. Mm, um, mm-hmm. And so it feels fresh in that way. But then there's this weird remove that happens where you're like, well, but is this actually good? I don't know. And I, I mean, I, I, like the, the yellow face scene, I feel like is, is part and parcel of that, which is like, it's presented in such a lighthearted way as satire. Um, like it's they're again, they're kids playing, they're putting on a show. Right. Um, and it's all just a big joke. Uh, and somehow that feels so much more insidious to me than if they were literally like, Oh my gosh, like, I don't know. Asian people are terrible. Yeah. That scene was kind of crazy because I had forgotten that you had mentioned that there was going to be yellow face in the movie. And (laughs) and I was like, and he was talking like, Oh, let's put up a show for the Americans. Let's do something that they're going to like the Vietnam war. And I was thinking like, Oh, this is like getting political. That's interesting. And then it was like, Oh no, this is where the yellow face comes in. And, (laughs) and it's uh, one of those things where, you are trying to make a point because clearly Godard was really against the war and he was really actually very furious about it. But also Mm -hmm. you have a very specific perspective and you can't look beyond certain terms, right? And you you make fun of the American and you say, well, if I make fun of the American, I can also make fun of the Vietnamese people, right? But it's not, it's like a false equivalency. And then you forget that France used to, you know, Vietnam was colonized by France before the war. So it all becomes a little strange. Yeah. I mean, like, really, what are you trying to say with that scene? Like, that's what I think I'm coming back to is like, yes, these images are striking, but really, what are you trying to say? Like, is this a criticism of the Vietnam War? Because like, what? Yeah, I mean, I kind of wish that this movie had been funnier. I think mm-hmm. it would have been more entertaining. Yeah. I think maybe it was funnier or felt fresher or newer at the time. You know, um, mm-hmm. clearly there's been a lot of followers of, of Godard, especially of the early movies and the just in general, the self-referentiality, referencing other movies and kind of like the comedic, playful tone. Um, maybe we should get into our questions. Yeah, yeah? that sounds good. Yeah. So the first question is what makes this a Criterion movie? Um, I don't know who wants to start with that. Um, Esther, do you want to give that question a try or should we go? Sure. I mean, I, I, I do think, um, I mean, he was one of the people who's literally started a film movement. Uh, so that makes sense that you would put his films in the Criterion channel. Um I do think, as you were saying, that um, it was revolutionary for its time. Um, And I I do think there are still so many striking images from this movie, regardless of, like, what you think of the story or its intention. Um, That, yeah, I, 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 it makes sense to me that it would be included in the film canon. Mm -hmm. Whether I... I, I do think it falls into a lot of the issues of like 
well, who gets to define the canon and why, but um, as it stands, yeah, it makes sense as a Criterion film. Yeah, and it is actually in the collection, mm-hmm. uh, number 149 in the Criterion collection. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it makes total sense because I, he was just such a, an influential director. Uh, I think if you were making an indie kind of collection, you got to have, you got to have Godard. And uh, so this is a pretty popular one. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah um, I agree with what both of you are saying. Um, just on a more personal note, so far I've seen maybe three or four movies by Godard and I've never like fully connected with any of them. I haven't been wowed by any of them, but the more, but I'm always interested somehow it's it's a weird thing and it's just because he's doing he's so interested in doing his own thing especially later on in his career and and kind of like um i don't know kind of like defining what cinema can be or should be that i'm always like well this guy is like talking about all this interesting stuff that interests me like i should watch more um so i don't know this is i guess a roundabout way of saying like i think i'm gonna be like watching more of his stuff in order to be able to talk more coherently about it. I don't know. Um. I also would like to say, going back to your point, Rachel, about how so much of this was improvised, I really don't think um, Anna Karina gets enough due for making his films what they are. Mm. Uh, just like so much of what I think what resonated with me in, in, in his movies is her face. Like she just does so much in the littlest gestures, her little quirks. Like, I mean, she is the ultimate manic pixie dream girl, but she's so damn good at it uh, that I feel like that performance alone like deserves to be lauded. Yeah. And and it's interesting because I feel like it's a case in which she he's trying to de- demonize her a little bit in this movie mm-hmm. and she still comes you still come out of it being like oh she was so cool and she was so great and she's so pretty etc <laughs> etc et right so um I think a lot has to do with her uh charisma and her talent yeah and her mm-hmm. uniqueness and her nerve um okay so let's move on to our next question which is where does this rank in the pretentiousness scale and this is interesting because we have uniformly agreed in the past that number 10 in the scale the most pretentious is a Jean-Luc Godard movie (laughs) a later one film socialism so how does this one compare to that one and I think the whole world wants to know Rachel Wagner what do you think (laughs) 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 9.5 case closed (laughs) Do you want to elaborate yeah. on that at all, or not really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, just so many of the different, the breaking the fourth wall, the using of images, the way they use subtitles, uh, the uh, the the fragmented storytelling, the, all of that stuff is pretty pretentious, mm-hmm. I would say. What do you think, Esther? I feel like... This is either a one or a 10, <laughs> depending on how you view it, right? Because, I, Rachel, I totally agree with you. Um, 
it feels so put on, like, because it's such a distinct style, it feels like, okay, you're doing a thing. Um, and, and so much of it is, uh, also him trying to do something that is not all of the other things, um, which I feel like is very pretentious. But then at the same time, it's like that sense of, oh, we're just kids playing. Like, we're not taking ourselves seriously. We're just like, you know, we're going to run around and like drive cars and have fun. And like, yeah, I'll look at the camera. Who cares? Like the, 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 the editing doesn't have to be continuous. Who cares? Mm-hmm. Um, which is like maybe very earnest in a, in a way. But then like there's this extra layer of the people who are like, oh, I'm above caring is actually the most pretentious. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, it keeps swinging back and forth. <laughs> yeah, like I remember Roger Ebert said in his review about film socialism that it was an affront to all movie making. And that is not this movie. <laughs> it's not that. <laughs> but still. The interesting thing I would say wow. about that is that I think that the fact that it is an affront to all movie making, it's not a failure <laughs> you know because i feel like that's what he wants to do so it's a very i think in the case of jean-luc godard pretension is like his whole thing it's like yeah. even from the very beginning from the time that he was a film critic on cahier yeah. du cinema uh before he became a director and i don't know if either of you have read any of his criticism it is no. indecipherable i don't know what the <laughs> hell he's trying to say he writes things like the cinema is Nicholas Ray, and a tracking shot is a matter of uh, morality or something like that. So this like weird, it's almost like this is something that I'm just repeating from someone else, uh, from someone from the Important Cinema Club podcast who said this, but I think it's very uh, apropos, is that it's almost like reading those like Chairman Mao books that have little aphorisms, you know, like very little <laughs> sentences that don't make any sense. So it's kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah, I've never read yeah. any of that, but but I feel like he he's making movies to really either both have the really tick off the people at cons or have people be trying to like pretending they understand it and then he's laughing at them pretending that they understand it. I don't know. <laughs> Wait, so is it actually that Godard himself is a zero on the pretension scale, but every <laughs> person who loves his movie is a maybe test. that's true i don't know <laughs> well depends on how self-aware he is i'm not sure that's the thing i think that's a very good uh theory yeah. except for the fact that we have his writings and when he talks <laughs> we know that how he thinks of himself and his work so um i don't yeah. think that applies now let's do something that would really piss him off and let's pitch <laughs> a remake of this movie um if we were going to do it um nowadays um rachel would you like to go first well so what i was thinking is to have paul thomas anderson direct it because he's done some wacky things pretentious things in the past movies like magnolia Mm -hmm. phantom thread Mm -hmm. i feel like he which i know is your favorite but he could he could bring some of that energy into this story and yeah. you'd have Timothy Chalamet and Dakota Fanning. Oh, okay. Oh. That's interesting. I feel like it would be pretty solid. That's an interesting um, 
age reversal. I think he's supposed to be older in this movie, so I think it's interesting to have the the woman be the older one. Um, Wait, how old is Dakota uh, Fanning? Is Dakota she... Fanning? She's a little. She's not. She's young, right? But she's she's twenty seven, I think. Twenty seven, and okay. and Timmy is pretty young, so. Um, how old is Timothy? I thought they were around the same age, but I have no idea. Let me check. He uh, might he might be older than I think he is. I thought he was young. He's 25. younger than me. Twenty five. Okay, that's not a big difference actually. So yeah. they're pretty contemporaries. Um, so never mind what I said. I think that sounds <laughs> fun. Um, it makes me uh, talking of Paul Thomas Anderson. I think like Punch Drunk Love and Inherent Vice have oh, that kind yeah. of like weird comedy thing. So I could see that. Um, I think it would be, yeah. it would be weird. I <laughs> I think I would not want to watch it, but that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Esther, what would you do then if you were able to remake? <laughs> so, I mean, I don't First of all, the the actual remake of this movie is Bonnie and Clyde. Like that's the actual American remake. Um, right. Cuz it's like that it, it did come out after. Came out a couple of years later and Godard wasn't yeah. supposed I know that Bonnie and Clyde, they wanted a French director to do it, but I think it was Truffaut. They wanted Truffaut, Truffaut. yeah. They wanted Truffaut to do 1967, it. 1967, yeah, you're right. Um, but I And I think that's actually the best possible American remake. But uh, I was trying to think of, like, what's the worst possible version of, of the remake. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I was actually thinking Timothy Chalamet also, for some, for some reason. Um <laughs> But I think I landed on, um, uh, like, Quentin Tarantino directing. Okay. Uh, and and it's uh, Leo DiCaprio and some, like, really wayfish, like, dead-eyed supermodel who's, like, 20. Okay. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, it just like takes itself completely seriously. So this is just supposed to be the movie of your nightmares or something. Yeah, yeah. This is just like the worst possible version of this movie, mm-hmm. and I I have so much fun imagining it. I mean, I yeah, I think this would be terrible. I they they've never tried to do a remake of Breakfast at Tiffany's, but they have tried to do Broadway musicals multiple times, and it has been mm. huge disasters. the The last time they tried was with Amelia Clark, and it closed in like a week. It was really bad evidently and yeah there's just something about this type of story that doesn't bode well for remakes certainly not broadway musicals Hmm. yeah i mean i also feel like there's there's just like no one would ever remake this movie right because it's all about the director's style like the the plot itself has been done a million times Mm -hmm. okay i have my i have my remake I just okay. came up with it on the spot and I think it's perfect because I want to do the thing that would be the most like you Esther what could be the furthest away from Jean-Luc Godard what would piss him off the most and what would I think is the movie of my nightmares so in my version of Piero the Fou Piero and Marianne guess what they joined the Marvel Cinematic Universe so <laughs> they continue their adventures and they hang out with the Avengers or whatever they fight Tainos. Maybe we see like the whole 
of kind of like what they did in Avengers Endgame with the time travel, but it's just them uh-huh. in all of the Marvel movies. <laughs> you uh, know, it could be like WandaVision, but in a new wave European <laughs> cinema. Yeah, I mean, is, isn't WandaVision kind yeah, of the yeah, same but thing? But it's a comp. Right? So, all, it's all references. So each day she wakes up and she's in a new <laughs> Jean-Luc Godard movie. She's like, the next is Agnes Varda, the next it's Fellini. <laughs> That's perfect. And my casting, the male lead, James Corden, oh, female lead, Lena Dunham. Oh, God. <laughs> there you have it. Dude. That is such a confusing movie. <laughs> I love That's it. Funny. And obviously uh... it's directed by a computer. No, no director. It's directed by the algorithm. <laughs> Very good. Oh. Uh, yeah. Great. So, any last words? We made it through the Godard film. I'm so proud of us. Thank you so much for joining us, Esther. This was so much fun. Thank you for having me. Um, I feel like I hated on Godard a lot. I kind of feel like I was talking about a boyfriend I had in high school who broke my heart. Um, so, uh, hopefully, I don't come off as too salty. No. Yeah, well, we'll do the film socialism episode, uh, you know, 10 months from now, and you can come back and we will all redeem ourselves because we're obviously going to love that by that point. Obviously, yes. Yeah. I feel like I feel like after I go into my Godard dive, I might come out of it like totally like Godard pilt or something. Oh, and I'm yeah. going to be like, we're going to lose <laughs> He's you, a genius. <laughs> So, yes. So next time we are going to be talking about Pather Panchali, which is the classic film from director Satajit Ray. And I've been wanting to watch it for a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, so I'm excited to to give it a watch and check it out. Yeah, same here. I've been wanting to see it for a long time. Classic of Indian cinema probably the most famous Indian movie outside mm-hmm. of India. So I'm really uh, looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And almost every single one of my friends who's seen it have given it five stars or four and a half stars on Letterboxd. So that's good. That's a good sign. All right. Hopefully, Hopefully you like it more than <laughs> this movie. Hopefully. <laughs> I've never seen it, so it should be good. Uh, but yes, thanks again, Esther, for coming on. And make sure y'all are following us at Criterion Pod on Twitter. I'm starting a thread where I'm sharing my films that I own from the Criterion Collection. Started that today on this recording. So uh, definitely check out over there and you can see my collection and share yours. And that would be really fun. Yeah, that's great. And I would do the same if I owned any Criterion. Can you believe that I don't have a single Criterion disc and I host this show? <laughs> you need to um, get with it, Conrado. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll, next time they have a sale, I'll, I promise I will buy a couple. Um, Esther, do you want to say to the people where they can find you on social media? Or do you want to be a private person? Sure, I can plug away. Um, you can find me on all of the social media at Esther Yumi Co. Uh, E-S-T-H-E-R-Y-U-M-I-K-O. Um, and I have a blog, kind of a travel blog, although really it's turning into like a ranty political blog, sorry, um, <laughs> called Paragraphs and Pixels. All right. Great. We can put that in the description of this awesome. episode. Make sure people check it out. Yes. And- um 
you can find me you can find me at rachel's reviews all over social media itunes youtube and on ron tomatoes i just on my rachel's reviews channel just got the 3k subscribers so that was very exciting so check that out i would appreciate it and then also you can find me at hallmarkies podcast and we have some great films that we're talking about over there and we've got lots of good interviews and fun stuff so check it out yeah and you can follow me on twitter at coco hits and why and you can also listen to my other podcast foreign invader where we talk about pop culture from not the united states of america a lot of fun stuff happening over there so check that out well thanks again and we'll talk to you all next time bye everyone bye thank you